Hey, if you guys need Bibles, raise your hands, and uh, one of the folks walking through the aisles will get you a Bible. You can turn to the book of, pronounce that. How come some people said Habakkuk and some people said Habakkuk? Whatever way you pronounce it, turn there. So, New Testament, if you go just into the Old Testament, a couple books back, uh, you'll see Habakkuk, it's just after Nahum, and Nahum's just before it. So, there you go. If you can find your way there to Habakkuk, we're going to start in chapter 1, and we're going to work our way through 11 verses this morning. So, as we get into this uh, new series on Habakkuk, it's important for you to understand that Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. So, there's a section of your Bible that's called the prophets, and it's broken down into major and minor prophets. Anybody know why? Major means what? Bigger. They're longer. Minor just means they're shorter. So it doesn't mean they're less significant. It just means that they're shorter. So it is one of the minor prophets. And Habakkuk gets a startling revelation from God that has extreme relevance to you and I today. So before we get into that, let me pray. And we'll pray for Ricardo and his sister as well. Father, we come before you and ask you this morning that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, what you are telling us as your people this morning. God, I pray that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers. And in order to be doers, we need the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask you right now for your Holy Spirit. We pray for Ricardo, God, that you'd grant him wisdom and compassion and grace, uh, that he would be with his family and be able to serve them well. We pray for Keisha in the healing of her body entirely. We pray for her sons, that you'd give them faith in the midst of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, the older I get, and I know I'm not old, but the harder it is to hear stories. You know, every time I get a phone call, um, now at 35, I have a tendency to wince or just wonder like, what's coming on the other line. And the reason for that is the longer that you live, the more pain, anguish, and horror you see. It's harder for me to read the news or to watch the news. As you have four kids, seven and under, and you're in the summer in Arizona, you wince to read the news because you know basically every morning there's a child who fell into a pool and drowned or is in the hospital. Right? The longer you live as a friend or, for me, as a pastor, and you hear real-life stories of people, it makes your skin crawl at the abuse that exists within humanity. So whether that's verbal abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse or spiritual abuse or whatever that may be, you hear um, on the news or on the radio the realities of wars and genocide We're more connected than ever, so we know about starvation up close and personal in ways we've never known before. There's climactic change going on. There's potentially economic Armageddon, right, threats of pandemics. There's horrific murders, and for some reason, uh, we love to hear those stories, so the media presses them to the forefront, and all of it, all of it whether it's the internal angst within your soul, the darkness that comes over your mind, or the hearing of stories, it raises questions. And this raising of questions, theologians throughout time have titled 
a theological term they've placed on it's called theodicy. And all theodicy is, is basically this large question of trying to make sense of God's working in history. So it's the reality of questions like, where is God? Is there a God in light of this? How could God allow this? Why is God silent? What does it mean to live with faith in a world that oftentimes seems headed for destruction? What does it mean to live faithfully when it seems like God is so absent that he doesn't talk to us? When it feels like he isn't there, when we scream out questions like, where are you? How in the midst of that reality are we supposed to fulfill God's purposes? Are we supposed to walk with him? Well, the prophet Habakkuk provides us with incredible insights that can help us and will help us think through these questions. He writes this um, book about 2,600 years ago. He's a contemporary of other prophets like Nahum and Jeremiah. And basically what happened is Habakkuk received an oracle from God, a vision from God of a conversation that he had with him, that he calls this oracle, that word that starts the book, literally means this burden I carry internally and the burden that I'm supposed to communicate. This is what I saw This conversation with God where he's complaining and God's responding. He's complaining and God's responding. Now many people will talk about this book and they'll title it From Fear to Faith. That Habakkuk started with fear and he ends with faith. I was spending time with a mentor of mine the past couple days and we were talking about Habakkuk and he said, you know what the reality is is that he doesn't necessarily leave fear entirely. In fact, at the end of the book, his knees likely are knocking even more than they were at the beginning of the book, but he moved through fear. It was more like faith in spite of fear. Faith in the midst of frustration. Faith in the midst of anxiety. This book is Habakkuk's struggle to understand what God is doing in his time how he's supposed to live out his calling and how he is supposed to hold on to what I would argue is an extraordinary faith. Now, Habakkuk sits in a section of your Bible that many of you are unfamiliar with, so a little bit of historical background in a setting for you to understand that this is a story, not in that it's myth, but it's a story, it's comprehension, God comprehensive, God's working in the midst of history. And let me pause for a moment for those of you who might sit out there and not totally understand what it is that we Christians believe. The Bible does not present itself as private truth. This is not a book that we look at and just go, hey man, this is great for me in my personal faith. The Bible doesn't allow us to do that because the Bible presents itself as public truth. The Bible presents itself as the true story of the whole world that gives us answers for the beginnings of the world, that gives us answer for how it's all going to end and where history is ultimately going. It provides us wisdom and truth 
for today to make sense of these realities of intense amounts of suffering and the reality of God's existence. And the story starts with a God who's forever existed, creating a world in which he identifies is good. In every way, it's good. And then he creates the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, and he says, this is very good. When male and female are together and human beings are living in harmony with God, themselves, each other, and creation, this is good. This is the way God intended the world to function. But Adam and Eve disobey God's good word, listen to the enemy, to Satan, and the whole world, based upon their disobedience, gets twisted and distorted, falls into death and sin Because of their disobedience. At that moment, God says, over my dead body will I let the enemy, Satan, win. And he makes a promise that one day he will reclaim this creation for his very own. Every aspect of it. From the leaves on the tree to the flourishing of human life to individual souls. He promises, I will reclaim it. And he begins to do that by the calling of a man named Abraham, who, by the way, very interesting thought, is starts off in Ur of the Chaldees. He's a Chaldean. He's a Babylonian, which this book's going to speak a ton about the Babylonians. He says to Abraham, Abraham, through you, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And in this nation will, in turn, be a blessing to many nations. So through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by me making you into a nation. That nation's title was Israel. Through Abraham comes the development of a people. Moses establishes this people, gathers around them, begins to form them as a people in the exodus out of Egypt. They grow in Egypt and Moses leads them out. And then Moses doesn't get to establish them in a land. Joshua does that. He gets a land that God called where his people would be established and formed so that they might be a light to the nations. He is establishing a nation that would declare to the world, this is what life looks like under the one true God. As Israel begins to establish themselves in that land, they, are given, they had been given this law and they're seeking to live under it, but many times, oftentimes, they're failing and leaders come in, judges and kings, which is why we have the book of Judges and then the book of First and Second Kings and the book of First and Second Chronicles, and there is... All these leaders, only a little bit sprinkled in, are godly leaders. Most of them are ungodly, and that's why the prophets come in. Because under ungodly leadership, with ungodly people, the nation of Israel is not living up to their calling, and the prophets begin to call them back to be faithful to God, to be faithful to his word, to be faithful to the commitment that God made to them as the people of God, the covenant, that they would be faithful to, to that. That's where we land in the book of Habakkuk. The nation of Israel, after King Solomon, had split into two areas. The northern kingdom was Israel, the southern kingdom was Judah. Assyria and Egypt came and took over all of those areas. Israel had been exiled, the north had been exiled. Judah had gone through a lot of turmoil and ended up establishing itself. Right now, Habakkuk gets a vision that the Babylonians are coming. We're going to get to that, and they're going to take over the nation of Israel. Not a great picture that Habakkuk is beginning to get. So that's the historical background we find ourselves in. 
Here's the reality of where we are, of what Habakkuk is doing. Habakkuk is going to show us what real faith looks like in a twisted world. What real faith looks like in a twisted world. His name means embracer or wrestler. And so I played off that title a little bit. And this is the idea of how do we embrace the mysteries of God's justice. Because what Habakkuk is experiencing in Judah amongst the people of God feels like this is unrighteous. This is unjust, and how do I reconcile that with a just and righteous God who calls these his people? And then he, based upon God's response, begins to wrestle even more and have to embrace the mysteries of God's justice. So here's what we're going to talk about. Sustaining real faith in a twisted world, we see from Habakkuk, requires, it demands authenticity, wonder, and conviction. Authenticity, wonder, and conviction. So let's go at it. Sustaining real faith in a twisted world demands authenticity. Listen to Habakkuk's complaint before God. Right away, you may go, if that's the title in your Bible, you may go, complaining against God? Like, can I do that? Is that right? Well, he does. He says this, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Now hear this. He's speaking about his experience in Judah. These were to be the people of God. This is the nation that God called to himself. And he says, God, how long shall I cry for help? And you not hear. Or how long shall I cry to you? Violence. There's violence amongst your people. And how long will I cry this and you not save? Why, God, do you make me look at this junk? Why do you make me look upon iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? You idly look at it. You see this injustice. You see this wickedness. And you just sit there and don't do anything about it. I'm not even hearing you about it. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. It's not justice. There's an incredible authenticity in Habakkuk's plea. And I want you to see something. Habakkuk's issue is not with all the unrighteous, unjust people out there. It's with the people of God. So if we brought it here, this would be Habakkuk sitting in the midst of Redemption Tempe going, God, look at this place. Do you see the unrighteousness? Do you see the injustice amongst these people who call themselves your people? These are people, God, you've called to yourself and they aren't living in line with you for your glory and certainly cannot then fulfill the calling that you've placed upon their lives. Sexual abuse happens in the church, God. A misuse of power happens in the church. A misuse of money happens in the church. That's what he's saying. Amongst your people and you're not doing anything about it. Here's what he's saying. God, are you listening? God, are you there? God, do something. Now, here's what Habakkuk knew deep down because he believed and knew God's word is that God had not called Israel simply unto privilege. He didn't call them in such a way that they could go, we're God's people. They, in fact, thought that, and that's why they were so wrong. God called them to himself that they might be a light to the rest of this world that he created. 
He called them and gave them a law that would, if they obeyed it, would allow them to live in faithfulness to him and in turn live before the nations to say to all the nations that surrounded Israel, which there were many, to say to them, this is what life looks like under Yahweh, the one true God. This is why they were to recite to themselves every day and multiple times a day, they would recite something called the Shema. And the Shema was this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's no God other than the one true God. That's what they're saying. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love God with everything you are. And then the law said, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in so doing of loving God with everything you are by loving your neighbor as yourself and loving them through everything you do, through the way you go to work in the morning, through the way you conduct your families, all of it is before the nation saying, look, this is what economics look like under the one true God. This is what relationships look like under the one true God. This is what family dynamics look like. This is what it looks like for a child to respond to her parents and a parents to love their children. This is what it looks like. And so Habakkuk's not just going, God, they're not living for you. He's like, we cannot fulfill our calling in our unholiness. This is not just we're failing to love. This is unlove to the highest degree. This is violence. This is injustice. What's amazing about that is I'm not sure Judah Judah even noticed it. They had become so acclimated to the culture that they were around, they just got domesticated with it. This is just life. And I'm back is going, no. In fact, it's death. Our calling before God is to show the world this is the way. This is the truth. This is life. And in so doing, with our, the way we live our lives and what we promote and what Israel was to speak, that they were literally to say to the nations, that's not the way. That's not the truth. In fact, that's false, and that leads to death. But they couldn't do it because they had been domesticated by the nations. They lived just like them, and Habakkuk's going, God, where are you? He's identifying national wickedness, corrupt leadership, and paralyzed justice. That God, what you meant to rule human life, your word, to bring forth life and flourishing to this community. We're not obeying and it's being broken at every level. Justice, righteousness is paralyzed because of sin. What's amazing about Habakkuk here is he understands that and to sustain a true faith in a real world, he's authentic. He's authentic. He tells God what he's really feeling, what he really thinks. He identifies what seems to be God's apparent silence. He says, you don't hear. You idly look at wrong. Now, there's a potential thing we could do when we experience suffering and anguish and tension to that degree. And we, too, could misunderstand silence but go beyond what Habakkuk does. There's two ways to complain with God, to be authentic with God. One is in faith and one is as a skeptic. So some of what many people see in the world of the suffering and anguish leads them to conclude there's no God. 
or that God's powerless, or that he's not good, but there's no God. Now, let me just ask you this question for a minute. If you look at the suffering and injustice in the world, and it makes you sick deep down and angry at other times. I was sitting just down there um, this morning, and I got a text message from a guy at the Arcadia congregation that saw a video about how we're serving refugees, and he texted back to me, and he said, do you ever get pushback on that? You know, people complaining about our work with refugees, and I said, certainly we do. And he says back to me, um, any of them valid? And I said, valid arguments against loving your neighbor? <laughs> Question, no. And then he wrote back, what is it? And I said, fear. And then he said, fear makes me so angry, right? That's true about unrighteousness in our world, right? It makes you angry, rightfully so. It makes you concerned, rightfully so. But if that leads you to skepticism, therefore there is no God, let me ask you this. Where does that leave you any different than if you believed in God? You still have the same problems we do with believing in God. You still got suffering in the world. You still got injustice in the world. It still makes you sick. It still gives you a pit in your stomach. It still makes you crave for a better day. And so people will say things like, we want a utopia, where the scriptures say where it's moving is the kingdom of God. Right? So some people will say, I can't believe in God with all this suffering in the world. Well, you have equally as big of a problem. If you're telling me I have to deal with the problem of pain and suffering, you have to deal with the problem of beauty. How is it that you can walk to a zoo and see the beauty of a tiger and go, that's astounding? How is it that in a marriage relationship, somebody in deep amounts of commitment through better or worse, richer or poor, sticks with somebody and you have tastes and glimpse of heaven? How do you explain that? How do you explain the beauty of sitting at a Grand Canyon and seeing a sunset or the pictures that go upon Instagram that show the beauty of God's creation? You have to deal with that as much as those of faith have to deal with the problem of pain. And let me tell you, those of you who still hold on to God but really struggle with this reality, let me tell you this. If you have a God who's big enough to be angry with, because the reason you're angry with him is you're going, God, I know you can fix this. That's Habakkuk. What Habakkuk's about to see is that if you have a God who's big enough to be angry with, you have a God who's big enough to work beyond your finite mind. To do things in a way you wouldn't do it and you couldn't even dream of doing it with the precision and wisdom that he does. Habakkuk understands that. He understands that God is there and that God is not silent. And so this gives him a passionate complaint because he knows God's there. He knows he can fix it. He knows God's character is righteous and just and that he then cares about this. So here's what you learn, what we learn from Habakkuk. Habakkuk's faith, we need to have a faith that's passionate and it's honest. One that's informed by God's word. One that's informed by God's word. God, I know what you're doing. And I have to wrestle with what you're doing and the promise of who you are in light of these circumstances. He's also aware of current circumstances. We can learn from this. He's aware of what's going on around him. One of the problems with our culture is that we are so picking self-absorbed that you don't even know what's going on beyond your own reach. You don't know the thoughts of people beyond the thoughts you have in your own head because you're so massively self-absorbed. That's one of the problems with our country. We don't even know the way other people think because we're so massively self-absorbed. 
He knows about current circumstances and he cares about them. He cares about the community and the neighborhood in which he lives. He cares about the people he dwells amongst. And therefore, their lives, when they aren't in line with the way God intended things, grieve him. This leads to another amazing thought. He's bothered by things. So many of us are just totally indifferent. It is the way it is. That's life. Becky Pippert, in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, makes a statement that's been made by other people before, is that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. That's like our motto, right? Just, we're indifferent. It is what it is. He was bothered by it deep down and therefore sought to change it through prayer, proclamation, and action. Let me say this too. Habakkuk totally shows us that there's different kinds of faith. Okay, hear me on this. Not everybody's going to struggle the way Habakkuk struggles, and yet they're still going to have faith. So in the scriptures, this mentor of mine was enlightening me this to yesterday, in the scriptures you see people, for example, you know, the, the heroines of the Hebrew faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Abraham was one who just fought to have faith, to believe, right? He was just, he had a problem with belief all the time. God told him he was going to do something, he didn't believe. God told him he was going to do something, and it wore off on his wife, his wife's laughing. He doesn't believe it. Even after the fact of God delivering each time, you know, he still has questioning moments. He's just, he's in a, a battle to believe, right? Then you have Isaac, and Isaac's just got this meek, simple faith. He's, many of us don't even know about him. We couldn't even recall the story, but it's just kind of the steady plotting. He's not the center of attention. He's kind of behind the scenes, in a corner, and just keeps going. Some of us have that very meek, steady faith. And then there's those of us who have like a fighting faith. And what I mean by a fighting faith, that's Jacob, right? Is that if you ever ask Jacob, do you believe every time? Yes, confidently. I have no questions in his mind, but he's constantly fighting to keep his life in line, with what he says he so confidently believes. Those are just three examples, and Habakkuk's another one. And so I say to you, having faith in the midst of frustration, anxiety, deep amounts of suffering and darkness doesn't play out the same way for everybody, but what it shows us is, take heed, have faith. Now what's astounding right here is this leads us to this idea of sustaining real faith in a twisted world demands wonder. And what I mean by wonder, it demands wonder, the ability to have faith in spite of the current circumstances and just go, God, what are you doing? And the what are you doing comes from faith, not skepticism. Now that wonder doesn't always mean wonder like you're sitting at a beach in San Diego going, wow, God, look how big you are. Wonder can also mean that you're incredibly confused. While you have this foundation of faith, my wife exemplifies this. She was uh, one of two girls that was raised in a predominantly like female household. And she had a father, um, but it was girls, right? And they played like girls and they did whatever. So our first two children were boys and they're seven and five. And my wife wonders a lot. Like she watches these boys and she's like, what? And then she'll watch me. Like things that she complained to me about before we had boys, like, you're disgusting puke. And I'm like, that's just the way God made me. I'm a man, you know? Like, like, I don't know what to tell you. And then all of a sudden, we had to have boys for her to realize boys actually do stuff like that, right? Like, the boys run into a couch, like, head first, and she's like, they're gonna break their neck. You're gonna break your neck. And then she's, 
Are you okay? Yeah, and they get up, ha, 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 and they're laughing, and they walk by, whack, smack somebody on the back, and, you know, then they go to take baths, and they're really fascinated with their own anatomy, and, you know, she's like, this is disgusting. Like, what are these kids? So she'll say things like, she'll go, and then she comes to these conclusions where she goes, God, what did you do? I'm con- convinced you made a mistake. Like, and she'll say this, what are these creatures? Right? She has a wonder that's confusion. Well, that's what's about to happen to Habakkuk because God now responds to him and God responds to him in such a way that he says, I'm gonna do something. You're wondering if I'll do anything. I'm gonna do something, but it is so beyond your capacity to think. And here's what he's about to say. I'm gonna use a more unjust nation than Judah to bring judgment upon Judah. So his problem is, violence, God, injustice, do something. And he goes, okay, I'm going to use more violence and injustice to do something. That's like, what? Now listen to this. Look among the nations. So God says, look, Habakkuk, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. Hear what he says, wonder, be astounded, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not theirs. They are dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, like the fortress in Jerusalem, like the fortress in Jerusalem, for they pile up earth and take it. They sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Now, I just want to read that second part of 111. Guilty men whose own might is their God. There's no love. They're hard and hasty. They want the whole world. And they are what the Bible calls idolaters. They idolize their own power. Their own might is their God. What's our God? Right? Like he's talking to nations. What are the gods of our nation? Right? We could enter into this idea of power and go, is it in our military might? Is it in our Blackhawks? Certainly, we have misplaced trust and belief in a military. But I would argue even deeper than that is what that power produces an opportunity for us to worship like comfort, convenience, safety, security. We love the comfort that we can get the best for us, that we can be in a safe place, that we can have convenience and not have to worry about it. Pardon me for a minute with making this critique, okay? It's, It's a good prayer, but as often as it's said, I think might reveal an idol more than it reveals a thankful heart. The number of times that I sit in prayer meetings and one of the first things that's ever prayed is, God, thank you that we're safe. 
Thank you that we are free to worship. Now, should we praise God and thank him that we're free to worship? Yes. But let me just ask, and I'm not telling you to stop praying that prayer, but let me ask you this question. Is that prayer motivated more based upon your fear of danger and your worship of comfort and convenience? Because a lot of times the church in the New Testament oftentimes over and over again was purified and strengthened and made more potent through suffering. Are we willing to cross the lines to be with people that are different than us? Are we willing to walk into suffering? Or are we unable to do that because as their God was their might, our God is our comfort, convenience, safety, and security. We accumulate power so that we can buy things to make it more convenient. Now it's on the press of a phone. I can get whatever I want. What are our gods? What are the gods of our nation that we take hold of as redemption tempe? Or could a prophet rise up in our midst and go, God, this is unjust. This is unrighteous. The psalmist says that. Some will trust in horses. Some will trust in chariots. But the difference amongst the people of God is he says, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. That in God we find our comfort. In God we find our convenience. In God we find our safety and our security. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the power that we have to cross into suffering. To take on hard cases. To love people that are difficult to love. To stand up and say something that's unpopular. I don't worship the same gods you do. We don't worship those gods. We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now what's amazing here is that God is bringing judgment upon Judah for their unfaithfulness to God's word, for their unfaithfulness to his covenant, and he's going to use an unrighteous nation to do that. He already did this with a portion of Israel, with the northern kingdom, Israel. He's already done it. The Assyrians led him away, and his word says that he was judging the Israelites that the Judah, the southern tribe, might be warned. Take heed, Judah. Look at what I'm doing in bringing judgment upon Israel. And then in the end, now he says, you didn't obey, so I'm going to bring a foreign nation upon you to bring judgment upon you, and the judgment of Judah is there to warn the nations. Why? Because the whole world belongs to God. All the nations are his. He doesn't love Israel any more than he loves Egypt. And we see that when the kingdom's fully realized. In Isaiah 19, he begins to call Assyria and Egypt his sons, those whom he loves. He's constant, he's just using Israel to declare his glory and his love to the world. And let me say this to you, Redemption Tempe, God's judgment, this side of the final judgment, is not just to say, oh, you wicked and evil people, but it's to say, oh, you evil and wicked people, return to me. Judgment is both declarative, that's unrighteous. That isn't the way, that isn't the truth, that isn't where life is found. In fact, that is a road that leads to destruction and death. It's not where life is found, it's where death is found. It isn't truth, it's falsehood. It isn't the way. It's the wrong way. It's a dead end that leads to death. It's declarative in love and it's restorative. This judgment is meant to come upon nations. 
in such a way that they would return to God, that they would understand our Lord is a Savior. Jonah 2.9, the Lord saves. And it's true in our individual lives. Romans chapter 1 says right now that God's wrath is being revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And you know this as you live your life and you carry on unrighteousness. You think this is going to satisfy and then it doesn't. And you have guilt and you have shame. Relationships are broken. The more you begin to live for yourself, the more you unravel. The more multiple people begin to live for themselves, the more society unravels. And we live in that reality and we go, this stinks. That's the wrath of God being revealed right now against the ungodliness of righteousness of men. And hear me on this. This isn't God just saying that isn't the way. This is God saying return to life. That's why Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you life. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Do you understand Jesus is more committed to our joy than we are? Jesus is more committed to the flourishing of our city than any person in the city is. Jesus is more committed to the flourishing of nations than any nation is. Return to him. Judgment is a work of God's love. It is a work of God's love. The last thing is that sustaining real faith in a twisted world demands conviction. We see this in Habakkuk. He hears this crazy thing and yet he keeps a constant faith and you're gonna see this. This book ends unbelievable. It's absolutely beautiful but it demands conviction. It demands faith. The author of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 verse one says this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, many of us go through suffering and anguish and all of this, and we go, I'm not seeing it, God. And he goes, yes, that's faith. Believe me, it's the assurance of what you hope for, the assurance of my promise in Ecclesiastes that everything will be made beautiful in its time. The assurance of the fulfillment of all of history that's declared to us in the scriptures that one day Jesus will return. He'll put all things under his feet, including his enemies. He'll do away with Satan, sin, and death, and he will usher in the kingdom of God, which means, makes any human's vision of utopia pale in comparison. The kingdom of God, a place where love is the ethic of the day, a place in which Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control govern reality. A place where vocations flourish. Relationships are united and committed in ways we could never fathom. A place where colors are brighter and recreation and rest is something unparalleled that we didn't know it got to that level. The kingdom of God. When Jesus is rightfully on his throne with all of creation submitted to him and the world is the way that God intends in the way that every heart craves. Now you may go, every heart craves? Yeah. Ecclesiastes 1.11, God has set eternity in our hearts. That's why people, no matter if they believe or don't believe, establish visions of utopias because God has made us with a vision for this reality. We have to have that assurance that what we hope for is going to come to pass in conviction of things not seen. What is conviction of not th- things not seen? It means in the midst of everything that is the opposite of the kingdom of God. 
that the only thing you can say is this is the reality of the prince and power of the air, the enemy, the evil one, the one who's out to seek, kill, and destroy. Everybody is serving him, and therefore society's unraveling. When you see all that in front of you, you see death, you see abuse, you see relationships fractured, you see all of that, the conviction of things not seen, God is in it, and God's behind it. William Cowper was an incredible theologian and an amazing poet. He struggled with extreme depression. Not every, everybody in here has experienced that, but extreme depression. Darkness that would come over him so thick, and yet he remained convicted of things not seen, of God. And he penned these words in a poem, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. He says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. And then he exhorts us and he says, you fearful saints, you saints who are scared, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take The clouds that ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. These things you fear that you're running from in your worship of comfort, convenience, safety, and security are building up over your head so dark and black and you're scared of them and he says sit under them because they're about to break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace, because behind a frowning providence, here's what he means, behind circumstances in which it seems like there's a frown, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour, the bud may have a bitter taste. You may bite it and go, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain at his own time and in his own way. I love that. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain at his own time and his own way. Here's the question. When you sit in the midst of dark clouds. You feel the tension, you feel the frustration, you feel the anxiety, you feel the pain, and you feel the horror. Do you want to trust yourself in your feeble sense? Or do you want to sit in the conviction that God is his own interpreter, and he'll make it plain in his time and in his way? Here's what we learned from that. Jesus is, and this is all over the scriptures, the Lord of scripture, Jesus Christ himself, establishes all of history. History is under his control. History follows his plan. History, all of what we're experiencing, follows a divine timetable. Habakkuk was praying at the beginning of this and he wanted revival. God, bring revival. Let your people be just. And he wanted revival yesterday and God said, I'm gonna bring judgment tomorrow. Think about that. God, bring revival yesterday. This is horrible. Why do you make me look at this? And God says, I'm going to answer your prayer by bringing judgment tomorrow. Are you kidding? (laughs) History is bound up in the kingdom of God. 
that's where it's moving. That's the assurance of what we hope for. And how we know that is God himself entered into time as the man Jesus Christ. And he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. That I have come to defeat all the works of the enemy, all the realities of sin. I have come to defeat death. And in the man Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his sending of his spirit, the church is empowered to live as kingdom people today, to appropriate from that Christ event, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, to take from that life to the full, the abundant life that Jesus came to give, and to live that and proclaim that before the nations. That's the church. Amen? That is the church. We can never say that God is indifferent to this suffering because he entered into it and he completed it. All the works of sin, all the lies of the enemy, all of our disobedience he took upon himself that we might live that abundant life that he came to give. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Christ. God, give us the faith to believe that you are your own interpreter. God, give us the gift of faith. Give us the assurance of what we hope for in the kingdom of God. Give us the conviction to believe when we don't see it. Father, you are faithful. You are pure. You are good. You are righteous. You are just. We trust in that. In Christ's name, amen.